Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. If you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital, or in a command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster-tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to l3harris.com. Before we begin this episode, we just want to let you guys know that this is part one of Cynthia's episode. We had such a great time talking to her. She has a lot of really good information packed in here. So we're separating it out by two episodes. So this is part one. Make sure you check out next week, part two of Cynthia McCoy's episode. Let's begin. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. Man, I'm so excited to have Cynthia McCoy on here. Man, we get to be talking about all kinds of things related to emergency management and urban planning. She has so much experience. I worked with her out in Hurricane Harvey. She is now a senior planner with the city of Seattle. She was a risk analyst when I met her with FEMA. She was there for several years. She has multiple degrees in urban planning and design. I mean, she just has so much experience. She was even with uh, the Walt Disney uh, Imagineering Company. Um, So she just talked about all these different things that, you know, pull in these different aspects of emergency management and urban planning. So excited to have her on here. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Yeah. So uh, what we want to talk about today is kind of just your career path and some of those advice points you have for emergency managers who want to walk through both that mitigation and recovery piece, because sometimes they, they overlap, right? And so you can really talk to that. Um, so could you just kind of walk us through again, um, these two broad spectrums of both emergency management, which is kind of like saying business, right? Like there, there's so many areas you can focus on and urban uh, planning and what that looks like in your career. Absolutely. So both my graduate and my undergraduate degrees focused on urban planning, design, and geospatial analysis, which is how you and I came to meet. Uh, between my two experiences with um, or both my education, I spent about two and a half years living in Bulgaria between uh, 2007 and 2010 as a Peace Corps volunteer. There I was teaching English because I speak English, not because I'm trained necessarily <laughs> to teach it. Uh, I also taught environmental education because of my background in planning and also helping to improve tourism for a small community in the Rose Valley of Bulgaria. But I was also paying attention to the numerous hazard events that were occurring around the world. Just for a couple of examples, in 2007, Pakistan was hit by flooding. Thousands were displaced. 2008, tropical cyclones and an earthquake affected China, killing more than 220,000 people. And then there was the 2009 earthquake and tsunami in Indonesia killing 1,700 people. This is just a drop in the bucket of the number of events that occurred in that short period of time. And as a result, 
I decided to leverage my education in planning and design to support communities either by mitigating or by helping them to recover from natural hazard events. So after the Peace Corps, I went to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia uh, for graduate school, and I decided to take additional classes in international housing finance. In other words, what to do after a disaster for low-income communities and how to fund that, um, that recovery and redevelopment. And around that time, Haiti was struck by a 7.0 magnitude earthquake uh, near Port-au-Prince, their capital. And the landscape of the disaster uh, really came as a consequence of Haiti's lack of building codes. Uh, additionally, most of their informal housing is set on uh, precarious soils and steep slopes, and many of those housing units are um, in poor housing condition. So uh, all of this really contributed to uh, more than a million people being displaced or became homeless and squatting in unorganized encampments. So issues were even further exacerbated because their government has poor organization of land tenure. So you have multiple households claiming rights to one parcel of land. And they also had no formal housing finance for low-income households. So that's where myself and my manager came in at the time from Penn. After I graduated, I didn't go too far away from Penn, but just down the street, I decided to work for FEMA Region 3, cut my teeth in emergency management. And it wasn't more than a couple of months before Hurricane Sandy hit the East Coast. And at the time, I was sitting in Philadelphia, and we thought it was going to hit us. Um, and it was hit, it hit late in the year. Uh, it was well after most hurricanes hit the East Coast. And really because of the density of New York City and the surrounding boroughs, the city's uh, proximity, or they had closed numerous bridges because of their poor infrastructure quality. They closed down their subway systems, and they had rarely been updated in 100 years past they've been designed. Uh, and, of course, and I, I've heard this, on other episodes that you've recorded, people were ignoring the local official, the mayor's recommendation to evacuate. That caused more issues. So more than 40,000 people were looking for housing assistance after Hurricane Sandy hit. Um, and then more than half of those were renters. They were without any insurance to fall back on, unfortunately. So the flood hazard maps at the time didn't represent uh, what was completely at risk of flooding. I remember afterwards a number of individuals saying, although they lived in a coastal area, I didn't realize I was in a flood hazard area. That was amazing to hear. Yeah. Uh, and then just as I was finishing my time up at FEMA, as you mentioned, I now work for the city of Seattle, you and I met while supporting the recovery from Hurricane Harvey. And the majority of losses were felt in Harris County, where you'll find Houston, and then the Gulf Coast counties. Most of the losses occurred outside of what was considered the special flood hazard area, or what's mapped in the FEMA floodplain map. Uh, more than 50 inches of rain fell on the Houston area and dating and causing more than $35 billion in damage. And Houston has been growing at an enormous rate for more than 40 years. And as a result of that rapid development, it, they filled in more than 70% of their wetlands. And when you get rid of the wetlands, you're preventing the flooding from having somewhere to go. Yeah. And as a, in, in addition to reducing their wetlands, they also had a lack of zoning codes. And this laissez-faire 
uh, growth model really contributed to the amount of damage that Houston experienced. And I'll just say, I I think um, all of these issues point to the need for better communication to homeowners, renters, and elderly about uh, their structural and financial risk to natural hazards, among other things that we'll talk about today. So best intro ever, by the way. Um, (laughs) Wow. Very impressive. So, uh, man, there's so many things I, we could talk about. We could have an entire episode just about your background because you hit on so many important areas. Um, I remember I didn't deploy out to Pakistan, but I remember working, um, and studying about Pakistan and what was happening there. And, um, if I recall correctly, it was like a, it was like an eight month long disaster because as the floods went down, it was, it was impacting more and more communities as it was going downstream. And so, you have an immediate onset disaster, but it's acting like a slow onset disaster as it, as it slowly goes down and just impacts community after community after community. So, man, really good call out. I think you're the third Peace Corps volunteer that we've had on the show between Rodney, Cameron, and yourself now. I feel like I should call Peace Corps and we should make a relationship somehow because this is ridiculous. We just got, like, everybody everybody with a ton of, a ton of experience uh, is always with Peace Corps. So you're just talking them up really well and it shows um why that's such a good program and um it sounds like you got the bug i mean you heard about you know disasters and and you were dealing with this international experience and that's kind of how a lot of us get into the field is some some event occurred for me um you know it was tornadoes in ohio growing up and then um really the tsunami in um in japan uh really made me switch over to uh, an operations perspective uh, wanting to get out there and get in the mud. So uh, very cool experiences, very, very cool experiences. And uh, like you said, we could talk more about uh, each of those things today. Um, you bring up so many pieces of infrastructure and rebuilding. And um, when when I think of uh, how important wetlands are, I think of both, uh, let's see, I both think of Louisiana and I think of New York, how basically the wetlands were what was stopping the surge um, and now because they got rid of that, you know, here we are, we, we have a potential hazard. And so speaking to the need of, well, we want to grow our, we want to grow our economy, want to grow our, our infrastructure at the same time, we have to mitigate these disasters because, you know, billions of dollars of, of damage, as you noted, just in one County alone and, and Harvey, um, uh, I do have a random question. Does, is, uh, is Sandy, is that where you met James Dewar? No, at the time I was working at FEMA Region 3. So uh-huh. my position at FEMA was consistently a risk analyst, which was a kind of a joint position in providing support to the mitigation division for GIS analysis, but then during a disaster event, uh, supporting response and recovery. I didn't meet James until I went out to Region 10. Oh, okay. Okay. Because I know he was out there. He said GIUL for uh, Sandy. Um, okay. So... You have all these really cool experiences. You, you can touch on all these points. Um, at the end of the day, though, like urban planning and emergency management do, I mean, they, they, they are a cross-discipline for sure, but they do have... Huh? Or they should be. Yes, they should be. Absolutely. I mean, you're proving that it should be, right? Um, what are the... what are the, Why should they be? I mean, that's a, that's a good call out. Why should they be a cross-discipline? And in some ways, why aren't they? Well, I'll start with explaining a little bit about the primary role of each. So in my opinion, urban planner 
their primary role is to anticipate the growth and the needs of a community's future, keyword being future. They're, they're looking ahead. And as a result, they're influencing a city's physical form. Mm. Emergency managers, or we can think about it as emergency planning, it's the organization and management of resources and responsibilities for addressing all aspects of that emergency management life cycle. And in my opinion, historically, planners have determined how and where communities will be built in the future. And emergency managers have been reacting to those decisions, coming in after those decisions have been executed by others. And inversely, they're planning around the city's existing built environment. So they're looking at the cities in a different way. That's mm. the first big difference, in my opinion, between them. How and where communities are built are the biggest determinants of the impact of a disaster, not the response. So you're not going to have a loss if the structure is not in a high hazard area. There is a compelling need, as your, to your point, for a closer integration uh, between disaster and city planning. Successful coordination between these two fields can only occur when all the actors are integrating natural disaster and risk management into all aspects of land use planning. I think land use planning really is where they have an opportunity to coordinate and where there's a nexus between those two fields. For hazard mitigation, it's pertinent for emergency managers to be deeply involved in the city's comprehensive and land use planning. Comprehensive planning is where you're looking out maybe uh, 25, 50 years in the future of how do we want to see a city grow? Where do we potentially want to see uh, different, um, where do we want to see new parks? Where do we expect to see uh, the need for other schools? Where do we see job growth? Uh, whereas comprehensive plans should identify areas of greatest risk in, as they're making those decisions or making those assumptions, as well as including policies and standards to control the development in order to reduce that vulnerability. So in my opinion, the collaboration between these two groups, it's most crucial uh, during that mitigation and recovery phases to speak to that uh, emergency management life cycle. The mitigation phase requires planners to account for all the hazards that could impact future growth and development, including all, all aspects of land use planning, capital improvement projects, which is a term we use in city planning. And that means more of like transit projects. It could also mean utility infrastructure, uh, new buildings, and also in policy development. Their, their role, the urban planner's role in the recovery phase is the adjustment, like a dial, of how those aspects I just mentioned um, should change based upon the impact of the hazard. In other words, how does the hazard now inform how and where communities should be built now that we have this new information? They're constantly thinking about the future, but that has to be informed by new information that we're constantly receiving. Ideally, that's where they're both working together, emergency managers and planners. So finally, for these two groups to have, um, or rather I want to make the point, regardless of where they are in the, the life cycle, I think they have a responsibility to always lead with equity. Hazards are not distributed randomly, or rather the impact of hazards. And the hazard vulnerability of at-risk groups is always aggravated because poor land use planning. So we're already speaking to where these two groups need to collaborate. But as a part of poor land use planning that has probably occurred in the past, 
uh, a lot of social groups with the least amount of resources are those who are most directly exposed and impacted by risk. And the consequences of disasters, like evacuation, relocation, displacement of disasters, they have long-term impacts, not just on mental health, but financial impacts. And those who have um, the least amount of income, those are going to be the ones that are experiencing homelessness as a result. So I think it's important that as these two groups are working together, that they collaborate to ensure that those groups are at the forefront. There's a, a book I like a lot called Social Vulnerability. And um, I read it several years ago. I'm sure they've updated it since. But it talked about the socioeconomic impact and the cultural impact of disasters and how there's a there's an issue, right? There's... Um, so I was once asked a question by someone outside of our field and said, okay, like what's the argument of, um, you know, I, I'm tired of rebuilding somebody else's home when they're hit by a disaster and we just want to turn it into a park. Why don't the, why do they allow them to rebuild? And, um, I talked about how, um, the, the communities that are typically hit the hardest, uh, are, are on the, um, on that scale of socioeconomic wealth to to um, to um, poverty, they're usually on the lower end, which means blue collar jobs. And when you're trying to make ends meet, when you're when you're literally living like week to week of I, I need to get food, I need to be able to pay rent, car payment, the whole deal, and a mountain of debt possibly, and it's between evacuating and going to my job, my blue collar job for three more days, hopefully, and I'm praying that the hurricane doesn't hit. Um, you you look at these, you, you start to understand from a, a human level of why people aren't evacuating and why we allow trailer parks to be rebuilt and you know in these floodplains. And yet, as an emergency manager, as as a GIS guy especially, it it just drives me crazy because I'm like. I can guess where the tornado is going to hurt the most amount of people just by looking at where the trailer parks are because they're usually built in floodplains and they're usually built in these open spaces. And I can, I can make accurate assessments based off of data and, um, and wealth, unfortunately of like where the problems are going to be um, because uh, poor land use management and sometimes honestly greed. I mean, uh, hopefully that's not in the in the idea most of the times, but when a big company comes in and says they're going to buy all this land and build uh, these homes, and you know uh, that can be really good. There's a there's a town just um, west of here that that's what they did. The entire town's in a giant floodplain, hundred-year floodplain, which basically we we all know means um, every year there's a high risk, and uh, it's like man, that's that's just that's going to cause problems. And the first year we moved out here, we had that. That there was flooding in that town, there's flooding in Sacramento, and it was like you could predict that that wasn't that wasn't random as you're calling out. So I mean, you're you're just you're just noting how important it is to both protect people and understand why people live there, but also from an urban planning perspective. And my other call out would be hazard vulnerability assessments. The greatest thing that happened to me in D.C was uh, the director of the agency came over and said, hey, we're looking at uh, um, getting another facility. Uh, here's some locations where there's already facilities that we're, we're thinking about buying out or we're thinking about buying land. Can you do one of your HVAs that you do for us all the time on all of our, on our campus and just tell us, you know, 
based off your opinion, what what's going to happen there? And so I, I found crime rates and I talked about floodplains and we talked about, um, you know, potential sinkholes, all this kind of stuff. And I found out afterwards it was a test because they were already obviously working with, um, you know, urban planners and, and professionals, uh, engineers. And he was shocked that my data matched their data. And I was like, I'm not doing it off of like what I think is great. I just look at the geospatial information. And I, I also connected with, uh, you know, engineers. In fact, I drove up the road and met with a bunch of engineers before I met with them and got the information. I think that's what an emergency manager is supposed to do. I think an emergency manager is supposed to go in there and say, hey, here are the experts in each of these different areas and we can start to figure out what's best. And we can combine the the, the future impact of crime rate or um, you know escalation of issue just by looking at the data. So uh, really good information about historical versus future and how they, they should combine. So huge call out there. Um, again, you talked on... Sorry. Oh, I think the biggest challenge uh, now working in city government again to get emergency managers and urban planners, not to call them out specifically, but to get two departments to work together. Mm. They have two different pots of money. They have different um, carrots, if you will, that drives them. They have different goals. And it's really requiring them not only to align their annual schedules, for lack of better word. They have different requirements, different plans and programs and deliverables every year. And to be able to align themselves to see their common goals and how they can benefit and reduce duplication and support one another, I think is the first step. Otherwise, they're going to keep running into one another. So there is an opportunity for efficiency rather than duplicating. Yeah. And oh man, that's, yes, there is an opportunity there. Man, it's such a good call out. We, uh, when I think of, um, um, sometimes emergency managers be start to become a little doomsday preppy. And if there's any level of risk, then it's like, it's like a no go. Right. And a floodplain is the easiest one. If you have a 500 year flood floodplain or even a hundred year floodplain, you don't want to put residential there, but industrial, uh, where people are not living, you, you sometimes can, um, you, you, you look at the risk and you say like, okay, um, in insurance and if people are living here at the time of day and all these other different factors and you can start to understand um that it's not a, a black or white right there's a lot of gray there and to, to to look at that risk from an analytical perspective um but speaking of like mitigation and more of that recovery piece looking into the future something's happened um we've talked about this before and um just like to catch up viewers, you never want a disaster to happen. And you want to be able to mitigate, obviously, pre-disaster. Disasters, however, um, what what could happen, the, the best type of recovery that could happen is a recovery that's based off of future mitigation. And so it provides um, uh, essentially a clean slate um, to, to, to be able to help that out. And again, you never want a disaster to happen, but disasters that only address, hey, getting back to the way it were, well, the way it was before, just makes it, in my mind, just as vulnerable. So how do you approach recovery, dealing with Harvey and dealing with all these other disasters that you've been uh, you know, involved with? What is that importance to you of that mitigation 
uh, thinking of that mitigation piece even post-disaster? I think the biggest issue with recovery is that communities, as you mentioned, they want to get back to uh, their normal immediately, mm. which I understand. It's I have never personally been uh, someone who's been a impacted by a natural disaster, but based upon my experiences working with Sandy and Harvey, it's a traumatic experience and people want to get away from it as soon as possible. That's completely understandable. Mm -hmm. And it's further complicated by the slow pace of federal funding, to be honest, uh, and processing of insurance claims to support those households that are in need. For those households who can afford to have insurance, we don't want to dive into that rabbit hole. But additionally, projects that plan to leverage federal funding tied to a disaster declaration, it often requires a community to wait to rebuild their infrastructure projects uh, as the funding can't be used as a, on a reimbursable basis. So who can afford to wait to recover? This further exacerbates their desire to get back to normal. But you do have their attention, the decision makers and the public. You have their attention right after a disaster. They're more aware of their vulnerability, but it's a short period of time that you have that awareness. From a planning perspective, disaster recovery, depending upon the severity of an event, it does provide an opportunity to make serious changes to a community's planning policies, their building codes, inform their rebuilding strategies. And then, so when the next event occurs, ideally they have less of an impact. When I was working um, to support the Hurricane Harvey recovery, I was working for the National uh, Disaster Recovery Framework, and uh, I was asked to help develop rebuilding strategies based upon the location of historic flooding events, as well as uh, where they had had historic losses to flooding, primarily because the communities that were impacted by Harvey experienced storm surge and inland flooding where they also had uh, probabilistic risk. So for those who might not be familiar, it's where there's potential for risk to occur from other natural hazards. And then where we had communities that were actually impacted by Harvey. So this was a geospatial analysis using those components. And then the recommendations were delivered to the state and then the councils of governments in Texas as a stop, slow, and go. Why? Because the federal government can't Uh, tell local communities how to rebuild. So there were recommendations. Stop being, let's stop and think about whether or not we should be rebuilding here. Again, you have their awareness and by by being able to show them uh, data-informed information of you've had these risks happen in the past, you're likely to have it happen again and you just experienced it. You probably shouldn't rebuild here, but if you do, here are some recommendations on how to mitigate the structures when you rebuild them slow. Uh, These are recommendations of how to mitigate structures that may not have been completely destroyed, uh, but how to uh, mitigate that risk from happening again in the future, which is a challenge in that part of the country because elevating a structure uh, that's a, not a townhome, but a, um, what are they, a ranch style home that doesn't quite add to their property value. And it it starts asking questions of what, what type of mitigation is appropriate. So it did require us to spend a lot of time to find out what would be appropriate recommendations uh, for mitigation. And then go, uh, finally, is we were saying you were either impacted by one of these categories, but 
uh, maybe policies and planning would be your best step forward to make good changes. You're talking about um, some of these, I mean, I was just, as you're going through that, it, it, it made me go through some of these experiences that I had either working with survivors or um, out in, out in the field. And although I hate tornadoes, everybody knows me. I hate tornadoes are the worst. Uh, in terms of like going through a, an emotional roller coaster is uh, in my, my, not my opinion. Again, this is my opinion based off of hurricanes, wildfires, um, hazmat issues. We had a hazmat issue, a uh, big one that I had to deal with. Um, you know, man-made stuff. One of the one of the hardest to go through in terms of a natural disaster is a hurricane or a mass flooding event when it goes to your home. Because if you think about it emotionally, what your what your mind can process when a wildfire goes and destroys your home, it is horrific. It, it looks like a bomb went off or a nuke went off in the neighborhood, and there's nothing left, and everybody has nothing left. And emotionally, you're think, you can process some of the things you've lost. You can see your home gone, and that is horrific. If you, but if you move over to hurricanes, the reason why I think emotionally hurricanes are harder is this idea that every single item, you have to wipe the mud off and see if it's been destroyed or not. Every single heirloom, every single picture, um, you're ripping out walls, and you're hoping that the, the water didn't creep up behind the walls and create more mold. It's an emotional train wreck as you go through every single item. A wildfire, for example, just goes and destroys. And so there's just a lot of items you forget about. And, um, you know, that emotional attachment people have to, to the things. And, um, man, you just made me think about that. And um, the other one you made me think about was uh, Louisiana. I was in the Ninth Ward um, studying and, and doing some research uh, after uh, Hurricane Katrina. And uh, I went and met with a, a gentleman who um, he was, man, it, was, it couldn't have been 100 yards away from the levee where the le- levee broke. And he said it, it rose in his house 20 feet in five minutes. Um, and he went to the second story. And so um, what he, or first, yeah, it was a first story plus an attic. And what he had to do is he had to, by bare hands, break through the top of his roof and and he'd get his kids out and unfortunately this man um he, his family they didn't know how to swim and um and this is heart-wrenching his granddaughter so this man was i think he was like 55 when katrina hit his granddaughter fell into the water and they couldn't get her and um when they were displaced um about a, a within a week uh, after being displaced, um, his mother, so the great-grandmother, um, she passed away from being sick from, from um, the event. And um, in talking to him, I was standing in Ninth Ward back in his home. And uh, I was thinking, like, why, why would you come back here? And doing some more research on it, you're talking about what you should do after when a community's hit. 200 of the 400,000 people in, in, um, in uh, Katrina were displaced, right, around the country. So you now only have a half of your population. And they decided to, to vote to buy out all the properties and to relocate the people out of the Ninth Ward. Or uh, they, they, they could have stayed there, and it was a, a local decision. 
And um, instead of making that electronic or making that uh, possible for the 400,000 people to vote on, 200,000 people gone, uh, they, they only did it by in-person in the ninth ward. And so out of 400,000 people, only 200,000 people could have even voted on it. And then the only people that actually did, it was like in the hundreds. You had a couple hundred people vote. And those, it was like a unanimous. They're like, well, I've always been here. It's been a multi-generational thing. And again, you understand the perspective. So uh, it's really famous. Brad Pitt went in there, rebuilt a settlement on stilts, you know, and the homes were not, the homes were great when they built it. But again, why are you building there? And two, um, you know, you have a population that um, doesn't necessarily know how, how, have the means to take care of these, you know, expensive new homes. And so they were starting to decay a little bit. And um, this man was an advocate for um, for the Ninth Ward, and I, I really felt for him. And it's just like that's what people go through, and we don't really talk about that too much. We, we don't really talk about the, the their survivor and, and how we could help them. And that local level, it's so important to include those locals and to understand that, yeah, it could be a really slow-moving process. We, we know you want to get back to normal, but your new normal could be better with better mitigation. So that was a, that was a big thing for me, a, a long spiel, but um, man, you have really good points on here. So um, the socioeconomic conversation is so difficult because from one perspective as emergency manager, speaking to the lower ninth ward uh, and the communities that were impacted by Katrina, it seems to me on one end that it makes the most sense to remove the assets at risk, the structures. Uh, but at the same time, people have an emotional connection to their homes, to their communities. And by buying out the structure and relocating the community, you start to uh, divide the community assets. And I don't mean structures. I mean people. They have networks. They, they go to church. They have school. Uh, they have community groups. You're going to possibly divide that up. And then people are losing those resources as they're relocated somewhere else. And I, that's why I believe people want to stay. So it's really a difficult conversation. But making sure that when you have those conversations, you take into consideration the networks and the resources people have developed in their communities, finding a way to maintain them if the desire is to relocate, have that be an ongoing conversation rather than an ultimatum. And as going back to the point we were making before, the socioeconomic piece has to be a part of it. Uh, are you giving them fair and equal value for their property? And are they going to be able to stay in the community or are you making their situation worse? Yes. Um, disruption is real. It talks about, I mean, we're talking about how complex disasters are by talking about the socioeconomic impacts of communities, disruptions to those communities and those networks. Um, and I, man, I love how you're like, it's, it can't be an ultimatum. It really goes back to messaging. There's been so many issues. Uh, just in 2020, I've talked about this several times on my podcast that it really does come down to messaging. And, um, man, again, good call out. Hey, everybody, it's John again. This is end of part one of Cynthia McCoy's episode. It was such a good episode that we decided to split it up in two, two parts so you could really soak it in. Make sure you come back next week. Thanks again for tuning in.